0: The Guardian. One, two, three. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast with me Sean Kane, me Claire Armistead,
1: and me Richard Lee.
0: It's Christmas Eve! As families gather for Christmas or find they're spending the holiday season apart, we speak to Priya Basil about food, hospitality and the difficult subject of welcoming people into your own home. And later we'll be discussing our favourite books of the year and giving you our recommendations for 2020. After two continent-crossing novels and a novella set on the 1602 train to Waterloo, Priya Basil turns to non-fiction with Be My Guest. In it, she explores the subtle dynamics of the dinner table and how dealing with a house guest can help us understand the political choices forced on us in a world filled with inequalities. When she came to the studio, she began by reading a passage from the opening of the book, which describes one of the central figures in her eating life, her maternal grandmother, Mumji.
2: In the extended family household in Nairobi, where Mumji lived with Papaji during the first years of marriage, there was culinary competition of a very different sort. Food was complimented, as people never could be. Papaji's family were a reticent bunch. Their approval, if it came at all, took the form of a cheeky pinch or punch. Fortunately, appreciation of edibles did not need to be expressed in words. It could be conveyed in sighs of satisfaction and second helpings, and from the ladies, sidelong requests for recipes. The latter were never obliged. Mumji evolved a repertoire of tactics for rebuffing them. Forget the recipe, I'll just make it for you again, she promised her preferred people, while those she liked less but dared not risk alienating were told, There is no recipe, you just have to watch me make it. Needless to say, the occasion would never arise. Even in the communal family kitchen, she contrived to guard her methods from her in-laws. If she was ever cornered into explaining how to make a dish, she deliberately left out key ingredients or crucial steps. Even, especially, with her own daughter, my mother. Recently, Mum asked Mamji to show her how to make gulab jamans, small, deep-fried balls of milk solids soaked in sugar syrup. You can buy the ready-mix at the Indian shop, Mumji said. Have you ever done that? Mum wondered. Of course not. Mumsy replied and changed the subject.
1: As we sit here on a kind of cold day in London town, the inevitable approach of Christmas is hard to avoid. But but, do you celebrate Christmas?
2: We do, actually, uh, in a very secular way, like many of us, um, but as an excuse to get together and overindulge. <laughs> and because my family's spread out all over the place, so Australia, Kenya, um, Germany, India... As many of us as possible try to get together, but that doesn't happen every year.
1: And where will you be this year?
2: This year, I will be in London, having arrived on the 24th of December from Kenya. So I'll have a little pre-Christmas thing with my sister and her family and my father and brother. And then I come to London to be with my mum and my husband and uncle and mumji.
1: And eat some good food.
2: Yes. We the have true dis- meaning of Christmas. Exactly. And we, we each have designated days on which we cook. So the 24th is my mum, the 25th is my uncle, and the 26th is me. And it's one of those occasions where Mum mumji really takes a back seat, like probably the only time of year where she's not at the helm.
1: Uh, uh, it's actually, one of my favourite stories in uh, Be My Guest is your friend's husband clutching his belly, saying, it's Bria. <laughs> Are you a good cook? Are you a good host?
2: Well, I love to cook. Um, and it was a passion that kind of developed quite late. I, I love to eat always. And then um, when I left home, I realized that if I was going to continue eating well, I would either have to bankrupt myself <laughs> or find some other way of recreating the tastes and flavors that I craved. And so I began cooking and experimenting. And as for I, I'd like to think I'm a good host, but I, I fear I'm also very much um, shaped by the tradition of my family which is a tradition of excess and of um perhaps yeah making too much and wanting too much appreciation back
1: (laughs) (laughs) i mean you 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 say yes maybe perhaps is there something shameful or boastful about straightforwardly saying yes i am
2: you know maybe there shouldn't be but i feel like there's a kind of i always feel like a uh, A need to be a bit modest, even if deep inside I'm, I'm just like my grandmother and really uh, desperate for the admiration and love (laughs) of everybody. Um, And I think there's also something about hospitality itself, which is that you know inherent in this word. I think is the idea of getting more than you need or giving more than is required and so maybe the whole idea of being a sort of modestly generous host is actually a contradiction in terms <laughs> maybe just it's just not it. possible <laughs> <Yeah>. admit
1: it <laughs> i'm brilliant <laughs> um, you say that recipes are a story that can't be plagiarized and yet we just heard your grandmother guarding her recipes so very jealously
2: Yeah, I guess for her, not giving away the recipes was a way of holding on to this particular power she had Mm. to bring people to her table as the only place where they could get a particular taste or a particular experience of eating. Um, And because she didn't exchange recipes, didn't ask for them, didn't give them, I think she didn't open herself up to this incredible, beautiful exchange that is possible. And the realization, perhaps, that nothing is taken away from, from the giving, that when you recreate a recipe from someone, actually, it's sort of infused with their presence, the memory of eating it at their table. And um, it's a kind of a pity, I think, that she didn't allow herself that because she wanted too much to hold on to um, her authority and status as the only one who could make this particular dish for you.
1: And instead, when you give it away, actually, it it enhances it.
2: I think so. I always feel like that. I love getting recipes um, from friends after tasting dishes. And I always then associate that with them, even if I'm you know change it slightly Um, of course the other great thing about recipes is that after you've made them a couple of times they do feel like they're entirely yours (laughs) and and that kind of sense of ownership that you can take uh, I think is also really interesting
1: but you say you prefer like your mother to cook and complain instead of sharing the cooking with your husband is is this tussle over blame and control inevitable in a gendered society such as ours or is it just a reflection of the fact that cooking is a much much better job than clearing up
2: (laughs) Well, I think it depends who you ask, because some people weirdly, I don't understand it, but don't like cooking. But I think this gendered aspect is still very prevalent um, because uh, actually um, in the kind of domain of the home and the kitchen, it is still women, um doing most of that sort of work and um, for me this this role is also colored by the fact that my mother was the founder of a finishing school in Kenya and so she trained women and therefore also influenced my sister and I in a very particular ideal of being um, a host which was to be a sort of domestic goddess who not only presented everything perfectly but also looked perfect the perfect part
1: as if it wasn't costing you anything
2: yes exactly effortless (laughs) And uh, and also so so I have I sort of struggle to free myself from that perfectionism, but also from the sense of responsibility for making sure that harmony rules. I think that as women we often feel like it's our role to make sure that everybody feels fine and you know and to some degree perhaps we even enjoy that and we feel like that that's our power but I, I feel more and more like I, it's not up to me to, to, to make sure that everybody feels fine if we're all adults at the table then we're all equally responsible for making sure that we are, um, you know, understanding one another and feeling good in each other's company. Um, and although I do have this insight, I realize how deeply internalized these roles and these, um, these ideas of who, behaves how are, so that it's a con- continual struggle, really, to, to rise
1: above them. Yeah, but you say that there are some people who don't enjoy cooking, but you get to determine how the food is made, what it tastes like. You also get, as you say, the admiration of the guests. Who I know. Who could want
2: that? I know. How do you resist? I, I, but, you know... To be a guest is also um, a lovely role. I mean, to be taken care of, to be indulged and treated. I mean, of course, in a way, it's giving up control because, as you say, you're the one, the cook is deciding, you know, the the flavors, the tastes, the the, the order in which things will happen. Um, But to give yourself up to that, I think, is also very special. And I think that's why we all feel um, really kind of like something... Um, has been like a gift has been granted to us when we're invited somewhere to be brought into somebody's home and to feel that they made an effort for you uh, is is there's really kind of nothing else quite like it I think there's something very intimate and very unique
1: about that experience. There's also a kind of power relationship involved though I mean do you think that dietary requirements people saying oh I don't eat fish or I won't eat that or I'm avoiding gluten or whatever do you think they're the beginning of a pushback against that kind of power relation?
2: That's such an interesting question. I never thought of it that way, as, it's, uh, as, a, as, a, as a way of a guest kind of um, having an influence on how things are done. Um, that's, that's a really good point. Yeah, maybe it is a way of asserting and of influencing uh, the way the meal will, uh, what direction it will go in.
1: Because perhaps people are slightly less uncomfortable with kind of giving themselves up, as you say.
2: Yes, and also maybe it's more acceptable that, that people have different preferences and that they're also making choices based on their values, their ideas of, you know, how one should live. Or their health. Or their health. And, um, and because so many people are doing that, it doesn't feel so odd to say, oh, actually, I'm not eating this. And so one is sort of emboldened to do that. And actually, as a cook, I find it really interesting to have the challenge of having to work around what people aren't eating
1: i've been struggling for a way of putting this question delicately and i haven't managed to come up with it um, but you say that you are uh, you come from a family for whom eating meant being stuffed so how come to put it indelicately how come you're not enormous
2: um a, a bit of self restraint i suppose <laughs>
1: <laughs> perfectly finished
2: <laughs> yeah. um but yeah, it's it's a choice, I guess. Um, I'm, I must confess that when I was um, around eleven or twelve years old, my mother did put me on a diet. I mean, it's it's th- th- these questions are so difficult because we know how you know ideas of body image and how one eats. They can also lead to they can also damage you in certain ways. And I guess I'm sort of fortunate that my mother's, um, yeah, caution in that respect didn't didn't. Uh, l- Lead me to have any kind of eating disorder or something, but nevertheless, it it did leave me with a sense of um, being continually attentive to how I eat, and like, so although I indulge, I'm not indulging all the time.
1: That was tough for an eleven year old girl.
2: Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I had a sort of um, fast food. Uh, um, Shall we say a weak spot for fast food? <laughs> and although we lived in Kenya, so that nothing was available there, uh, but every year we would travel to London um, for the summer, and uh, my grandparents, as grandparents do, uh, would take my sister and I out to uh, different fast food joints, and uh, and I came back from one of these holidays a little chubbier, and my mother was really not impressed. So um, she 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 yeah, took care to make sure that I was eating much more carefully. Mm -hmm. And so I think when you have those kind of influences, they do also stay with you for better or for worse. Um, I mean, in a way, that's another thing. I wish I could free myself from this idea of how, you know, a woman should look. Um, but, uh, these are things that I think are lifelong struggles.
1: I wonder if it's a kind of problem, slightly more broadly. I mean, do you think that the idea of uh, as appetite, what we used to call a healthy appetite, do you think that's become a problem in the in the comfortable West?
2: Yeah, I'm, I wonder what that word really means anymore. Healthy appetite, uh, because I, I think when when scientific comparisons are done, we're eating much more relative to the sort of labour we're doing. And,
1: um, I mean, obesity rates are nudging 30% in the UK and, 40 and 40% forty in the US.
2: That's right. Uh, and also, the we're bombarded all the time with different ideas of how we should eat and how much we should eat. And I think it's kind of quite, it can, I can imagine it's quite hard to navigate that. And, and
1: as you say, what we should look like.
2: And what we should look like. And also, who can afford to eat in certain ways? Um, I mean, this is uh, another thing, because although it's often said that people on lower Incomes eat more fast food. Um, the question is, how could they afford to eat other things, and yeah, well, so, can they even
1: find it in shops near them?
2: Yes, yeah. And so these questions about what is available to who and how, and um, w- what what a society we make possible. Um, become critical, I think, to what sort of eaters and we become and how we also eat together or not.
1: Mm, there's something else in the book you mentioned is that the idea of cooking something up is also is preparing food, but it's also it's uh, stories, schemes, fantasy. There's something mistrustful about the phrase. Do you think that reflects Protestantism's deep suspicion of earthly pleasure?
2: That's such a good interpretation. Um, I hadn't thought of that while writing. I think I was more taken up with the um, rather glorious aspect of cooking something up in the imagination in terms of writing. But you're right that this word has different connotations and um, and. there's definitely a sense in which um, that can also be looked on as something to be suspicious of because the imagination can take us anywhere and to be seduced by that um, can lead to things that I guess not everyone would approve of. But I think that um, seduction and um, the the possibility to explore and to end up somewhere where you didn't think you would be uh, is actually one of the most exciting things about eating and living. Uh, and it can also be deeply challenging. Um, wh- when I was writing, I was, uh, for instance, really influenced by the uh, ideas of uh, the French philosopher Jacques Derrida, and his um, his notion of unconditional hospitality. And this, this just, just following this idea, in my thinking as I wrote, really took me to very uncomfortable places, but also opened up avenues um, that were so sort of Beautiful, And I think particularly in this moment where we're in a time where, you know, nationalism is rising, xenophobia is rising, and the idea of who belongs and who can be here seems to be ever more narrowly defined. This idea of unconditional hospitality, of complete openness, just seemed to me a sort of necessary vision um, to have in the world and to have in my imagination alongside the other currents that um, are influencing our public discourse.
1: Yeah, it's another fascinating thread through the book. You write about whether hospitality can, should, does, must have limits. I mean, you say after your father went bankrupt, you saw yourselves as as victims and therefore somehow absolved from any duty to others, how much worse their plight.
2: Yeah, this is one of the, I guess, dilemmas of being um, part of um, not just a family but a community, a country, so where do your obligations lie and to what extent do you um, take on those duties or recognise them and also what capacity do you have to do that? And for me that became sort of for the first time really present as a question after this experience of my father becoming bankrupt in Kenya, my family moving back to the UK relying on the welfare state to survive. Uh, and I, I often think that if that had happened now and we came, w- what would have happened to us? You know, how would our family have evolved? Because my sister and I were still entitled to free university education. My mother got a council flat where her and my brother lived. And uh, I think all of that wouldn't have that would happen now, or it would take much longer, and we certainly wouldn't have a free education. So we might have ended up as very different people. And so this idea that um, although we had suffered a loss Uh, we had the privilege of a state that could take care of us and therefore we were able to rebuild our lives and it seemed to me then that there was a kind of responsibility and obligation to reciprocate um, and how do you do that? Uh, I mean, these are questions that I'm still asking. And one one way that um, I began to do that was by following Peter Singer, the um, Australian philosopher's um, pledge uh, of effective altruism, which it begins with pledging 1% of your income to a charity and then the, the whole point of effective altruism is that it's a kind of competition that you have with yourself to constantly give a bit more than you've given before or think you can give. And extreme altruists, as they're called, they almost work almost to give. So they're giving 50 percent or more of their income away. And um, I, I'm still very much at the modest end of that. But I really appreciate this idea that the competition is not with anybody else, but with yourself simply to try and see how far you can overstep your own boundaries.
1: And uh, Growing up in Kenya I think seems to be a fascinating place to have been thinking about these things, or a fascinating experience to be able to draw on. I'm thinking of the open invitation of the Gurdwara, which is only accessible through a huge iron gate.
2: Yeah, this was... I think one of the abiding um, images of my childhood. So uh, the 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 Sikh have this tradition of the langar, which means community kitchen, and anybody can come and help to cook the food, and anybody can come to partake
1: of the meal. The radical kind of openness.
2: Absolutely, and it w- uh, so when a, I an
1: unlimited invitation.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of perhaps like one of the embodiments of unconditional hospitality that I know of in the world. And when I learned about this as a, as a child, it already had this incredible effect on my imagination because it seemed so at odds with everything I had experienced living in this society, which was still quite segregated. Um, Kenya became independent from British colonial rule in 1963. I was born in 1977, so it was just 20 odd years after, um, you know, the end of colonialism, and the society was still really divided. There was very little contact between white people, black people, and the Indian community, and so um, I thought, how how incredible that that this that this is possible, that there's an open invitation, and then how strange that every time we go to the temple, that only ever other Indian Sikhs, and the door to the temple. there was this huge blue gate, and the the big gate never opened, but there was a small door in the gate, and there was a guard there, and he would let people in. And so this question of who is the invitation really for, who hears about it, who gets to take it up, um, I guess has animated my thinking ever since.
1: Mm. Uh, I mean, the ancient Greeks believed that the gods walked among us, so treated the stranger as a god in disguise, as you say but you lament contemporary suspicions of the stranger, say, uh, saying that our caution leaves us to living a diminished existence. But isn't our wariness an inevitable consequence of city life?
2: It is, I think, to a degree. Um, but I, I think that if we connoted that word stranger a bit differently um, earlier in our lives, that maybe it wouldn't be such a unsettling word. Um, I think the first time probably many of us hear that word as children is uh, don't talk to strangers and so it's it's loaded with suspicion from the very beginning and um, what I find so interesting is that if one looks at the root of hospitality um, I was so delighted to discover this while researching my book that it comes from the ancient Indo-European word gosti, which meant host, guest and stranger simultaneously and I thought that was so beautiful because in a way I think those are the three roles through which we move all our lives consciously or unconsciously and this idea that we ourselves are or can be the stranger. Um, I mean, we all know that from moments where we lose it, we lose our tempers. We, we say that wasn't me. I wasn't myself. Or when we're ill and we feel totally estranged from our body. Um, but there are these moments in which we are the stranger or we're strange for others. And so I think to, to, to think of it like that might take some of the kind of charge and um, negative charge out of this idea of the stranger.
1: But just as there's some sort of inevitable thing about living in a city where you come across thousands and thousands of people every day that you can't be equally open to each one of them. There's a similar situation with migration, as you say, where in a comfortable place like the EU, where you have much, much more wealthy people than than elsewhere, you can't simply let everybody in straight away. Do you think that's that kind of those kind of limits are inevitable as well?
2: Yes, I do. Um I think it's very hard to imagine being absolutely open to the whole world. It's 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 a deeply challenging idea which I think very few of us are at all capable of sort of holding onto without a sense of feeling very destabilized. Um, In grappling with Derrida's ideas of unconditional hospitality, the way that I configured it for myself was to think, you know, I had this amazing privilege of moving between cultures and countries all my life. Um, It was a very privileged moving. I didn't, I wasn't forced by circumstances. I always chose to go and I always was well received and welcomed. This question of what you do with unearned privilege, I think one thing, one way of handling that is um, to try as far as possible not to decide in advance who else gets to share in that privilege, but to be ready to consider every case individually. And so this comes back to what you were saying about, you know, so many people. And when we think of so many, of course it's very hard to take that on board. But if we think of people, on a, you know, as individuals it might be easier to handle the idea of, um, of, of sharing our world
1: with others. Yeah, so can we all come eat cuttardie at yours then?
2: <laughs> you know, I sometimes ask myself, what have I done with writing this book, <laughs> a book called Be My Guest? <laughs> I've sort of put myself in this impossible position where, um, yeah, I've, I've committed to being open to people asking me if they can come over. And um, and you know not really being able to say no. So Richard, if you're in Berlin ever, I mean that's that's quite a nice thing that I live in another country. It, <laughs> makes, it makes it slightly more difficult to coordinate. Um, the interesting thing about curry, of course, is that uh, I can always say that I don't cook it. That my mum always makes it for me. That she makes the the base and she freezes it, and then I carry that to Berlin and um, and just add the final few ingredients to make it ready. Um, so uh, perhaps if there's a, an extra frozen portion in my freezer, I could recreate that particular curry.
1: I'm taking that as a yes.
2: That <laughs> was a very long winded, diplomatic, politician type answer.
0: <laughs> not quite committing. But if you are in Berlin, it would be a pleasure. That was Priya Basil. Be My Guest is published by Canongate in the UK and Knopf in the US. After the break, we'll be talking about our favourite books of the year. Welcome back to the Guardian Books Podcast. It is that time of year again where we reflect on some of our favourite books of the year. So if you're planning any New Year's resolutions to read more, get your pen and paper ready. Richard, what was your top pick of 2019?
1: Yeah, well, now, can I stop, first of all, to quibble with the idea of reading resolutions, which give me highs. <laughs> um, reading's supposed to be fun, isn't it? Aren't we supposed to enjoy it? Anyway, Come
3: on, Richard. Something... <laughs> it's also part of actually being able to talk about something to your friends. <laughs> <laughs> the well, resolution so you... is to have something to talk about. Uh, OK, there you go. <laughs> A so book. In, in which case,
1: talk about Catherine. And Jamie's Surfacing, which I think is terrific. Uh, It's a collection of essays about climate change and death, so not necessarily a whole bundle of laughs, but it's extremely timely and it's very poignant and it's very beautifully written. Um, She also reads beautifully too. Here she is reading a passage from Surfacing on the book's podcast a couple of weeks ago, where she describes a village elder on the west coast of Alaska who's casting his eye over the latest finds from an archaeological dig.
3: There was one elder who was particularly interested in the dig. The name he used was John Smith... John was a youthful sixty-eight or seventy, small of stature. Like most of the men, he usually wore thick checked lumberjack shirts and workman's jeans. He'd often drop by of an evening to see the day's finds, especially any pieces in walrus ivory, because he himself was a carver. One day, the excitement was an earring that had been found on site, carved of walrus ivory. It was a flat platelet, about a centimetre square, with two smaller pendant circles, a bit like owl eyes. The plate itself had been carved with a dot amid concentric circles. John took the earring into his hand, turned it, scrutinising it. How old is this? he asked. 500 years. How'd they do that without metal? Make those perfect circles.
0: Claire, what about you? What was your favourite book of this year? Well...
3: My favourite book is a, a bit of a late discovery. Um, it's Mark Haddon's The Porpoise. Oh, yeah. And I was really, really surprised that it didn't get on any of the prize lists. Mm. Uh, um, it's, a, it's a sort of reworking of Shakespeare's Pericles. Well, the jointly authored. And Shakespeare's rather shady, unpleasant joint author gets a, <laughs> gets a walk on in it. Um, and it's about the power of storytelling, abuse, all sorts of things. that, that How we save ourselves by telling stories um, and... I, it seems to me entirely topical, but also Mark Haddon, who is most famous for um, the six *Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime*, actually proves himself to be a fabulous word master. I mean, that, uh, a *Curious Incident*, for all its strength, was quite one note mm-hmm. because the central character was um, on the spectrum. Um, yeah, that was the voice, wasn't it? It was absolutely. very, very. It had a. It, it held a voice mm. within a very strict frame. Well, this is sort of a absolutely lush beautiful free-wheeling kaleidoscopic um, linguistic tour de force and um, but which is not to say that it's ever not precise as well that's the beautiful thing about Mark Haddon writing at his strength mm. and he's a writer who has I think is, is coming into his own in a way that we nobody really expected
1: How about you Charlotte? if you had to pick one book to, from 2019 just one what would it be?
0: <laughs> so I uh, came up with a list of six <laughs> <laughs> but I will I have I, I think it's actually quite easy uh, to narrow it down to one and, and that's The Five by Hallie Rubenhold um, which is uh, her biography of all of the uh, the five victims of Jack the Ripper, um, which most notably uh, basically barely names him at all, um, and talks about their lives and uh, ends at the moment of death, but doesn't describe any of the violence that was committed on them because it's, uh, as we all know, it's sort of the Jack the Ripper story is kind of mythologized, like everyone to some sort of degree knows that story. Um, And the amazing thing was that she could produce this book and say, hang on a minute, we have perpetuated a narrative that was based on falsehoods and actually three of these women weren't sex workers at all and we've had this whole narrative that they were all sort of rouge-cheeked women of the night that were trying to get a client and then were murdered and she said actually there's a much sadder story here which is that these women were homeless and mentally ill and sleeping on the streets and uh, were basically crimes of opportunity as opposed to some sort of, um, I don't know, street-cleaning sort of purging of... Of of sex workers, this was just just a very base misogyny. Um, Lanny by Max Porter, and I know Claire, you love Lanny as well. Um, I just sort of I was really sad that it didn't get on the shortlist for the Booker, um, just because I thought it was a remarkable little slim thing, and it really really had such a wonderful kind of magical, mystical. Atmosphere in it.
3: Yeah, Lanny is is partly about the disappearance of a child, but it is also about um, the land. There's there's mm. a the spirit of the land is this sort of half, it, really an amoral figure that that because he's seen. Death over millennia, and um, he come. You know, you're never quite sure whether he's good or he's bad. And Max Porter, being a complete original, um, decided at this year's Hay Festival not to just do a reading or anything so boring as a conversation, but to uh, stage it with a a folk band. Mm. Um, And we were lucky enough to get the recording on the podcast. So let's have a little listen into that.
4: We commence our lessons. We're indoors because mile-wide slabs of rain romp across the valley. Palette knife smears of bad weather rush past the window. Two chairs pulled up to the kitchen table. Snug. Fire on. Radio 3. Two pads, two pencils, a tumbler of juice, a mug of tea. Oh, Lanny, my friend, look at these blank pages. Don't you feel like God at the start of the ages? You can do anything. So go, I said, draw me a man. What man? Oh just a person, something human. I tossed a little coin in my head between tree and man and it landed man, so let's start with that. His shoulders roll over, right slightly higher as his arms hug the page and he starts to scratch away with a soft hum come whisper of half words and trickling bits of melody. He's concentrating, he's not a rusher. He scratches his head and sits up and slides the drawing over with a furrowed brow.
0: So are there any books you're looking forward to in 2020? Claire, how about you?
3: Well, the biggie for spring is obviously the concluding part of Hilary Mantel's Thomas Cromwell trilogy, The Mirror and the Light, which is out in March and I think needs no introduction to anyone all over the world. It must be one of the best known series in the world now. Yeah. Um, but there's also, of course, another conclusion, which is Ali Smith's Summer, which is the fourth part of her season's um, quartet, which is telling the story of us as we are now unfolding over real time. It's the, it, it was hailed as a Brexit quartet. Um, but, of course, Brexit will have passed us by by the time summer comes out.
1: Or maybe not. <laughs> maybe Who knows? Not. <laughs>
0: Who knows? <laughs> um,
3: what else? And um, the other one is um, a writer that I, I, I was really taken with called um, Akweki Emezi, who's a gender-fluid Nigerian writer. Um, and their novel, Freshwater, was on the Women's Prize um, long list um they've since produced a, a, a YA novel, which also features a um, transgender character. And this is called, her, uh, their next novel is called The Death of Vivek Oji. Um, and um, I will definitely be looking forward to that. Because I think that they're um, using African storytelling traditions in a way that brings a, a depth to this huge gender movement that's going on. Um, that I haven't read anywhere before and it just seems very vigorous and new and original.
0: Richard, how about you? What, what, what are you looking forward to next year?
1: How about a couple of things from early in the year? Mm-hmm. We've got Kylie Reed's Such a Fun Age, which is out from Bloomsbury. It's the first novel. Uh, it's the story of a young black woman who's looking after the, the child of a, of a white lady living in Philadelphia. Um, and the novel kicks off when she's called as a kind of emergency thing and has to go out late at night wearing her kind of party clothes to look after the kid who's just a toddler and because the kid likes looking at the nuts in the local grocery store <laughs> and it's still open, she goes in there, but of course it's a posh grocery store and everybody else there is white, and so you've got this young black woman looking after this small white child in this grocery store at 11 o'clock at night, and somebody calls the security. Right. And right. so the novel kind of kicks off from that, it's, it's, it's a kind of examination of all those kind of questions about power and race and what it means to look after somebody else's child, it's, it's, really, it's really good, it's very strong. Um, another thing I'm looking forward to again, uh, early in the year, Samantha Harvey um, has got a memoir she's um, we had her on the podcast a a, a little while back with her novel where the wind blows and now she's turned to memoir and this time it's about her own experience of sleeplessness Mm. and it's got the proof copy that I've seen has got a, a tiger on the front cover and you think just a minute. This 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 woman is writing about sleeplessness. So so what's a tiger doing on the front cover? But, <laughs> but it's 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 it proves very fierce. It's it's a, it's quite a brilliant kind of design. And stretching out all the way to February, uh, there's Adam Rutherford uh, who's got uh, How to Argue with a Racist, which is a kind of it's kind of depressing book to need in 2020. <laughs> but there's so many people trying to use kind of pseudoscience, cod science, science, you know, the new genetics to back up their racist views that he's decided it's time to come up and just say very clearly that actually it's just wrong. And he lays out how it's wrong and why it's wrong and how that should just shut up.
3: Everybody's going to want to read that, are yeah, sure. going to, Or they're going to want to burn it.
1: Or argue with it, exactly. <laughs> what about you? What titles are you looking forward to, Sean?
0: So um, I'm also looking forward to the Days Without End sequel by Sebastian Barry, The A, a Thousand Moons, uh, which is in March. Um, Uncanny Valley by uh, Anna Wiener, which is a uh, book coming out in January, um, which is a sort of reportage, expose of what it's like to be in the heart of Silicon Valley, which sounds really, really good. Um, There's also uh, Cleanness by Garth Greenwell which is kind of another sort of sort of sequel um, which is um, called uh, kind of a sequel to What Belongs to You which was his novel a couple years ago um, which uh, was rooted in some sort of autobiographical elements but basically an American um, uh, who uh, goes overseas um, to uh, teach English and then um, he's also gay and he sort of becomes um, uh, involved in the gay scene and Uh, that's out on 14th of January in the US but it's not out here till uh, 30th of April in the UK A couple other ones uh, I would say probably The Rat Line by Philippe Sands Um, so uh, he was the author of East West Street a few years ago which was a massive uh, bestseller and a big hit and uh, it's his book about the uh, route that the Nazis used to escape to Argentina after Second World War, which he's had a really great podcast about, so now this is the book. Um, And there's also This Is Big by uh, Marissa Meltzer, which is uh, a sort of history of Weight Watchers, but also her experience as a fat woman. And it's sort of all about can you be feminist and on a diet? Um, And the founder of uh, Weight Watchers has this really amazing interesting story um and it, it is actually a very good way to look at feminism and uh women's bodies and uh and and, and food um so uh, i'm really really looking forward to that one and that's out in may that's all for this week we are taking a break over the holidays, but we will be back in early January. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter, at Guardian Books, or on the podcast page. And remember, you can subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Sean Kane, me, Claire Armistead, me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Esther Jenny, thanks for listening, and have a wonderful Christmas and New Year. Podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.comslash podcasts.
3: Mein Name ist Erik Lorenz und ich spreche in meinem Podcast Weltwach mit meinen Gästen über die Faszination des Abenteuers und Reisens. Sponsor von Weltwach ist JW Marriott. Mit mehr als 90 Hotels weltweit folgt JW Marriott den Prinzipien der Achtsamkeit, um Reisende wie uns dabei zu unterstützen, uns auf uns selbst zu besinnen und uns ausgeglichen zu fühlen. Damit es sowohl unserem Körper als auch unserem Geist gut geht und wir echte Erholung finden. Mehr Informationen gibt es unter jwmarriott.com.